Welcome to season three of the Myelin and Melanin podcast. I'm Dawn. And I'm Dana. We're just two black women sharing our musings on life, MS, and everything in between. You can always find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at myelinmelanin. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. If you're a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron through our Patreon. Patrons can gain exclusive access to bonus content, giveaways, chances to join us on the Myelin and Melanin party line, and more. We'd like to thank our music producer, Shah Sevier, for providing our podcast music over the years. You can find him on Instagram at shah.sevier, and you can also find him on YouTube. Welcome to episode 54. We are continuing our conversation from last week with Dr. Donald Grant. Dr. Grant, just to refresh your memories, Dr. Grant is a sociocultural analyst and mental health expert who has served as an educator, media analyst, child welfare administrator, trainer, presenter, and social services advocate. He currently serves as the Executive Director of Mindful Training Solutions, as well as the Executive Director of Pacific Oaks College's Center for Community and Social Impact. He's also a published author and researcher, and we are really excited to continue this conversation. Um, This has been such a wonderful conversation, but I feel like uh, we didn't dig into this concept of intergenerational trauma in the way that I'd like to, because I'd really like your listeners to understand that a little bit more. And so um, Mm -hmm. is that okay with you if we jump into that for a little bit? Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So um, I recently published a book. It came out in last last October 2019, and it's uh, entitled Black Men, Intergenerational Colonialism and Behavioral Health a noose across nations and um, it's published by Paul Gray McMillan and it's a textbook uh, and it provides this historical exploration of how all of the risk and protective factors that exist for black people and black families um, across the world uh, have worked to, um, to our detriment. When we look at this concept of intergenerational trauma, Uh, people forget the fact that in addition to contemporary trauma and contemporary layers of oppression, we're still dealing with this intergenerational nature of things that we didn't necessarily experience ourselves, but that our ancestors Mm -hmm. did, that we still live with. Uh, Recently, uh, we saw a um, kind of anniversary of the uh, release of the prisoners from some of the Jewish Holocaust camps. Mm-hmm. And you saw some of the survivors returning um, to Auschwitz, I believe it was, to kind of remember their lost loved ones. Right. It is very clear that those individuals who are being raised by these grandparents and parents, whose parents and grandparents died in the Holocaust, that they're being impacted by that mm-hmm. experience. And what happens Mm -hmm. is there's several ways in which it happens. There's mechanisms through which this intergenerational trauma moves through the world. And so let's say we have a child who's in the backseat of the car with his father and his father gets pulled over by the police. And this child has never had a negative experience with police officers, Mm -hmm. but he is feeling the experience that his father is having, the anxiety 
um, I can remember when this happened to me. I was maybe about seven years old and my dad got pulled over. And I feel like he actually started to cry after because mm. he was so nervous. We, was in a, we were in an all-white neighborhood uh, right outside of Buffalo, New York, which is the early 80s. And I just remember him, remember him being so scared. Now, that is intergenerational trauma because we know mm -hmm. that everybody feels a level of anxiety when faced with a police stop, no matter whether you're white, Asian, whatever. Um, however, right. because police systems were created after our emancipation to re-enslave yeah. us, our yeah. great-great-great-grandfathers had an original intrinsic biological fear to this system because it more consistently mm -hmm. meant death. Now, it's not that those men explicitly told contemporary boys to be afraid, although we are now, um, to be afraid, it happened as a result of the modeling and the witnessing. Um, and so when we talk about this research and when we talk about looking at indigenous communities all across the world and how outcomes for Native American people on the, in North America or First Nations people, excuse me, in North America and Aboriginal populations um, in mm -hmm. Australia, we're seeing a level of disproportionate outcomes that is, that is an epidemic. The numbers of individuals in those small communities that experience substance abuse, domestic violence, school attrition mm -hmm. is, is, is crazy. However, when we look mm -hmm. at what the colonists did to them and their families, it makes sense that that trauma still lives in them and it manifests itself in this way. Um, and so when we talk right. about looking over centuries, Black people have been a part of a race-based oppressive system for centuries. In my book, I mm -hmm. cover 200,000 years of history to discuss the development of African nations pre-colonially because that's one of my efforts to help people dismantle this oppressive system. People oftentimes mm -hmm. start our history at our enslavement um, at yes. 19. However, we had a long history of developed nations while most countries in Europe yep. had still only been inhabited by Neanderthals, right. meaning that mm -hmm. the individuals who were on the continent of Africa had evolved after the first out of Africa movement when the Neanderthals and the Dzenovans went into those areas, they were still mm -hmm. living in that way until the second out of Africa movement when modern humans left the continent, but they were already there. And so we don't tell that story enough. And, and right. messages that white people get, right? White people, white children get messages throughout their entire matriculation that speaks to their heroism and how wonderful they've done to create this world that we live in. We don't do that with black yes, people. Right. So we have to yes. be telling those stories to dismantle these cycles uh, because intergenerational trauma is real. And now I just do a really other quick point. Um, the studies on epigenetics, mm -hmm. it speaks now to not just how intergenerational trauma exists in our minds and cognitively. So for a little while, I worked with this young man when I was working and doing some juvenile um, juvenile forensic work. And this kid, he told me, he said that gangbanging was in his blood because he had parents, grandparents on both sides who had been involved in gangs, cousins, um, brothers and sisters, everyone. And so this is what how he conceptualized it. Uh, and, and so I went through, he's a very smart kid. I went through this entire DNA transcription lesson uh, to help him understand how gangbanging could not be in his blood because 
there's a level of hopelessness that comes along with that, right? If you feel like mm -hmm. something is in your blood, you feel like you can't fight it. There's nothing you can do about it. So right. I wanted him to know that there was hope. Um, here's the problem is I wish I could go back to this kid because this is maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago, before the research on epigenetics was as uh, available and accessible as it is today. Um, and the problem is, is that epigenetics now states that individuals impacted by trauma experience changes in the behavior of their DNA. It's not that the wow. DNA actually is mutated or changes, but mm -hmm. how that DNA prompts the production of certain proteins, how it prompts the production of certain hormones may be very different. And so some kids may be able to re-regulate themselves after being dysregulated a little bit easier and other kids may not because the chromatin restructuring as a result of epigenetic changes has resulted in their neurotransmitters not necessarily working the same. The research on epigenetics is astounding and it speaks so much so much uh, to the weight of disproportionate burdens of trauma in our world. Wow, that is fascinating. It is fascinating. And so Dana and I were thinking, uh, we were talking about inter intergenerational trauma and thinking, how does this affect those of us who have a chronic illness like multiple sclerosis or or another autoimmune illness because we know that the the rate of of being diagnosed is much higher with african American or black people right now yeah. um don't yeah. don't know why does anybody know why do we know why black women and <laughs> well, it's mostly mostly black women are getting black women yeah right I, yeah. I, and i mean it's still it's i mean i in the past MS and people who have, it was thought that MS is a white person's disease. Right. It's not. The statistics show right. us that it's not. And we had a conversation a couple weeks ago with Dr. Williams, who's a black um, neurologist who does research on um, black people and, and MS. And black people are, yeah, like you were saying, Don, are diagnosed at the highest rate statistically now. So that being said, we know that stress is a huge component. Um, component yeah, yeah. Exactly. When it comes to MS and I'm sure other autoimmune and um, chronic yeah. illnesses. So how does, how might intergenerational trauma play into, uh, play into that? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. It, it plays in hugely. Um, I, I mentioned to you all in passing before, I have a sister-in-law who's a black woman who has MS as well. Mm -hmm. And um, when you look at, like you said, not just autoimmune disorders, but mm -hmm. when you look at cancer, HIV, mm -hmm. the whole array of autoimmune disorders, when you look at pervasive developmental disorders like autism and cerebral palsy, mm -hmm. we're looking at situations where these individuals are already engaged in a somatic battle, a physical battle against um, whatever is invading their system, right? And so that's one layer to it. When you add the layer of contemporary oppression, meaning a lack of access to current health care, a lack of resources, uh, discrimination, um, all these different things, and then 
you add this additional layer of historic trauma. Uh, the research on historic trauma has kind of demonstrated what they call historic trauma responses. Um, and historic trauma can be, you see it used interchangeably with intergenerational trauma um, in the Latinx communities. And um, they're using oftentimes a more specific language and they're calling mm -hmm. it immigration trauma, which can which mm -hmm. conflates with um, the intergenerational trauma in a really rough way. And they're doing some really great research in that area. Um, mm -hmm. But when you bring about these historic trauma responses, meaning that um, there are certain things that create a physiological response by us that others don't experience, you add to the stress of the body. So remember, stress is a word that originated in the science community, right? It was originally a physics term and mm -hmm. it was related to how much pressure you can put on a particular object or a particular material before it broke. It then moved into a construct of humans and personality and all these different things when we talk about our stressors. It is, mm -hmm. however, synonymous in the same way they talk about in physics, what type of pressures you can put on an object before it breaks. That's how it works with human beings. And so, like I mentioned earlier, many of us have the foundations for a lot of different things in our bodies. It's just the experience that makes it to be the case, right? And so let's talk about someone who becomes an alcoholic. You may have a predisposition to alcoholism in your family, which research demonstrates is a thing. Um, mm -hmm. But if you never, ever drink a glass of alcohol, you can never become an alcoholic. Right. Now, we know that's not likely in our world because in right. our um, society, alcohol is used very readily as a social device. Um, but I'm saying that to say if the conditions never become such that the underlying component could arise, it may never happen. And so the point I'm making is that black women and black men live in a space in many different nations. And this is what I describe in my book. It's not just in America. And I want us to really have this global context mm -hmm. because black men and women in France, black men and women in the UK and black men and women in Canada are all being disenfranchised at a statistically significant rate. My original study had six nations, but the other two didn't have the same level of statistical significance mm -hmm. as these four nations. And so we are all experiencing as a result of the Euronormative the Euronormative standards set in these nations, we are all moving around under an added set of pressure, both contemporarily and historically, that impact us today. And if we considered individuals as a two by four, a piece of wood, there'd be so many individuals with heavier weights on each side of them, making it such that the likelihood of them breaking is so much higher. Not that they're wow. weaker, because the two by fours are the exact same mm -hmm. strength. Right. The weight being added to the different two by fours, oftentimes based on characteristics that people did not gain merit to enter into, meaning that men did nothing to become men besides be born. White people right. did nothing besides be born to be white, heterosexual people and cisgender people did nothing but be born that way. Mm -hmm. And you get the benefits of group membership without having done anything to enter that wow. group. So this, this is so deep because <laughs> remember deep. Dana, yes. Dana and I were talking about, I think it was a post that you had found or saw and the woman was talking about being um, Caribbean American 
and having different treatment uh, versus she's and she was black or not Caribbean American. I'm sorry. She's black, but from the Oh, Caribbean. no, she uh -huh. was talking. Yeah, no, she was talking about the fact that um, as it relates research, to exactly. research right. and clinical trials, um, when you have clinical trials with black people, that all black people are lumped yes. into one category aside from people who are from the continent of Africa. Yep. And at first, you know, I sort of had a problem with that because the experiences that, you know, when it comes to diet and mm -hmm. other cultural things are different for somebody, let's say, who grew up um in the caribbean versus yeah. somebody who grew up in the united states however thinking about it in the context of what you were just talking about dr grant we all come from that um euronormative right. reality so that yeah, i guess that it makes, makes more a lot sense of sense to me now well it's yeah it depends on how you, you know, you have to cut it in different ways. And so it depends on how you, how you chop it up and what it is you're talking mm -hmm. about. Right. And right. so I try hard in research to use terms like black people as opposed right. to African-Americans. Right. Yes. right. Because a lot of what I'm talking about extends across the entire diaspora of black right. folk living in Euronormative nations. And so right. if I'm talking about the U S and Canada, Black people in Canada are not no. African American. Right. No, <laughs> Black right. Are not African American. Now, having said that, there are some nuances that we must pay attention to to not allow people to dictate our entire existence as a mm -hmm. monolithic mm -hmm. existence. Right? right. There are practices and um, traditions that come from Caribbean culture, that come mm -hmm. from Afro-Cuban culture, that come right. from our Afro-Latinx brothers and sisters that are different and create different experiences for us. We know right. that the, um, the transatlantic slave trade was dropping, was dropping Africans off in Brazil for way mm -hmm. longer than it was dropping those people off in mm -hmm. um, the United States or in, on, right. in North America. And so we can't minimize the fact that all those individuals who are dropped off at the seasoning camps in Jamaica um, and, and, and the Caribbean and Cuba um, and those being dropped off in Brazil, we come from the same context as you just described. Right. But our individual experiences in those different nations also says something. Um, one might talk about how many people in the in Brazil are surrounded by many other people of color, and so their experience may be more with colorism right. than racism. Yes, and that's an yep. important hope that we have to talk about too, because yes. colorism is is you know is an outpour of white supremacy, right? It, it yep. is a decision to deliberately make people who are who come from a genetic commonality and just have different con different concentrations of melanin in their skin mm -hmm. it's a device to pit them against one another um yep. and i think spike lee did such a wonderful job in school days when he oh yeah uh, had those scenes and it was a really really well articulated um thing and that was almost 30 years ago yet we're still dealing with colorism in the black community and the brown community yes. Even in the Asian community, people don't realize that Asian American women, um, I think Japanese specifically, but don't quote me on it, are the number one purchasers mm -hmm. of skin bleaching cream um, in the world because white euronormative 
practices of beauty have demonstrated that that is what is good. That is what is beautiful. Try Googling beautiful women. See how many people of color are up there who are, are not in bathing suits being objectified. Mm-hmm. See, see what you see. What you see. It I've is, seen that. Striking. Yeah, with of, Japanese yeah. women, they have um, eyelid surgery as well, as long as well as the bleaching cream. So I've seen yes. that uh, written mm-hmm. down. Yeah. 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 They've been inculcated with mm-hmm. what beauty is supposed to be, and that comes from a white mm-hmm. Euronormative standard. And again, I want to mm. be clear, um, and, and I, I, I struggle with with doing this, right? So I'm going to say we're not attacking white people; we're attacking white privilege. So when I do things yes. like that, I think in my head, I've also been conditioned mm-hmm. to take care of white people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've said that more than one time on this podcast, and I want to be aware of the fact that am I saying that because I want people to be able to hear the message? Or am I saying that because I've been conditioned through white supremacy to work hard at yes. not making white people feel uncomfortable? Yes. So I'm being yes. apologetic for right. it. So I'm in this mm-hmm. work, but I still deal with managing yeah. it. Right? This is my research over 20 years, yet I am still impacted by how yes. all this stuff works. Right. Wow. And I think that it's, you know, we have this ongoing trauma. I think that may be the difference with us and other ethnicities or races. Um, it doesn't just end. Like, for example, you were talking about the the Holocaust. Um, theirs ended. Their trauma ended. I mean, granted, we may have few people, you know, putting up Nazi signs or whatever. A lot of people, okay, so that, but yeah, right, yeah. but. That's triggering. Yes. I get it. I, I get that. And I, I empathize or sympathize or whatever. But I think our situation as Black people, it's just yes. constant. It, we don't escape Never. this. We don't escape these stressors that we were talking about earlier. And it it really interferes with our, our health, mm-hmm. our, our overall health, our mental yes. health for sure. Yeah. But it contributes to the damage that's done with people who have MS, for example. I mean, I know for for sure because I this is this is a controversial issue here. But I was doing everything right. I was eating right. I was doing yoga. I was doing acupuncture. I was going to meditation, getting massages. I I was running. I was doing everything the right way. But then one day, I let a tremendous amount of stress in my life. And it went on for about a week. And I never realized how much I had internalized. And then like, I think later on that weekend, it just went into a full blown exacerbation. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I have never been the same since. Mm. And it was all of this stress that was piled on that I had just gathered from years and Mm. and months. And I, I don't know where it came from. But yeah. uh, it was probably buried in my subconscious. Right. But uh, but again, and I'm not saying that I was like poor and down and out and, you know, all of these things. But we just hold on to that yeah. that stress, especially as black women. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's difficult to manage and, and to navigate through and to make sense of it all. So that's why I'm really happy to talk to you about it, because it, it kind of like helps me make sense of well, this. <laughs> and I think that it's man it needs to be mandatory to understand i mean we have to people have researchers have to examine this 
We have to. I mean, it's not a coincidence that black women, for example, are being diagnosed with MS. No. At at a higher higher, rate. There's no coincidence that that and things like stress and intergenerational trauma and oppression, that that's not linked. I mean, yeah. Wow. they're, they're, They're hugely linked. And there's so many factors that go into this intersectionality, what I like to call the ethnogender, um, ethnogender intersection. Uh, so when you bring in the overlapping of black, black and woman, um, you are bringing together a gumbo of experiences and ingredients that create the perfect storm for a lot of things. We mentioned earlier infant mortality and death at childbirth for Black women is exponentially higher than other groups. Uh, we understand that uh, Black women are disproportionately represented in poverty compared to many other groups. We understand that the number one increase in deaths um in america right now are black trans women and so this intersection is really important to recognize and research has to come from this kind of lens of cultural empathy i don't use the word cultural competence because cultural Mm -hmm. competence connotes that there's an ending point right oh you've become competent Mm -hmm. and now you can do this Mm -hmm. um and so there is no such thing as cultural competence um but to to operate and to practice from a layer and a lens of cultural empathy that you know really empowers people and really more importantly not more importantly than that but equally as importantly as that gets the information that they need in order to serve correctly, right? And we have to empower Black people to to engage in these systems. Um, But when they do, note that they're engaging in a system that has been historically riddled with injuries. And so we want to be able to empower Black people um, to ask questions. So for instance, when you're going to a new therapist or a new medical doctor, you should be able to be empowered to ask, have you ever treated other Black people or African Americans? Um, have you re- yes. have you received training in cultural empathy on Black mental health or Black physical health? Um, or even something like, how do you see our cultural backgrounds influencing communication in our treatment? Like these are questions that yes. black people need to be empowered to ask. Or how how will you incorporate my beliefs and practices into my treatment? We oftentimes go in and we just sit back and allow the practitioner to give themselves, and yet we don't plug ourselves in because we've never been empowered to do so in this space. But th- those kind of questions yes. are what we need to be doing to make sure that this doctor knows that we're not going to just allow this intergenerational medical apartheid to ruin our lives. We're going to advocate for our children. I had my son recently, um, he has eczema and we were removing the steroid treatment from his um, regimen and he had lost a bunch Mm. of weight and I'd taken him to the doctor and the doctor just kind of, you know, did this body touch and it wasn't his regular doctor just kind of did this body Mm. touch. And like I was coming as though I was coming in for cold and I said, um, I need you to test for this. I need a parasite test, blah, blah. He was like, well, you know, mm-hmm. you only get parasites if you've been out of the country. And I said, we just left, we were just in China for two weeks. So I need a parasite test because his mm-hmm. expectation was that because we were this monoracial black family, uh, yes. we yes. had not been out of the country or we had not done this or we had not mm-hmm. done that. And so mm-hmm. I had to advocate 
for my son. And I don't usually use Dr. Grant in much that I do unless it's a formal presentation. Uh, right. But when I'm in the doctor's office, I find myself having to drop my credential, sometimes formally, yes. sometimes informally. This time I dropped it formally. Um, and he called me Mr. Grant and I said, it's Dr. Grant. And I did that deliberately. Yes. But when I do yes. that, I think about all the men and women who can't. Yes. That I have this academic privilege to be able to drop that and then suddenly yes. shift the context of the conversation where this man is seeing me more peer-like than not. But most Black folk don't have the luxury of doing that. And their son would have just been moved on to the next space yes. without these additional yes. tests. Yeah. Yes. I think that black, that is so important. It really is. You oh gosh, you're dropping dropping all these gems. Yes. <laughs> I think that we are intimidated. Black people are are have been intimidated over the years. I'm gonna reframe of, that. I'm gonna reframe that really quickly. Please continue, but okay. we have been conditioned yeah. to be intimidated, right? And so I don't Thank want you. it yeah. to sound like yeah. an intrinsic quality. I want us to know that right. there's a system put in place to make us feel that way. Yes. I, okay. This is an aside and um, I, I'm hoping people will understand how I, how this relates. So um, I did inpatient rehab. I had a really bad MS exacerbation um, a couple of months ago and I did inpatient rehab and just some context about me. Um, I teach, I, teach college part-time. I just teach sociology. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, fine. I do that. It's not, I don't have my PhD. I'm ABD forever. That's <laughs> the story. But um, anyway, but that being said, like, so I, here I am a patient in the hospital, whatever, this younger black woman, woman of color, you know, however they see me. And I noticed that after they look at my chart and see what I do, that here is this woman who is a you know college professor, they treat me differently. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the narrative changes. Yep. Like I will notice it like visibly, like, you know, they'll kind of come in, like treat me any kind of way. Oh, here's this girl, you know, whatever. And then suddenly they read my chart, like, oh, I didn't know you. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And so when you're talking about having like dropping your credentials in certain contexts, that sometimes it's it's necessary. It's necessary. Because people sad. will treat you completely. Yes. It's so sad. Yeah. Like, why didn't you treat me with respect before you found out this right. information? And, that's exact, that's and now exact, suddenly it changes. That's the exact piece that that we have to be aware of and people have to be very honest of is that some people walk into a room and their humanity and their expertise is automatically granted. Mm -hmm. Other mm -hmm. people yes. walk into a room and they have to show receipts prior to their humanity right. yes. being accepted. Mm -hmm. it's just it is. It is. And I, I remember, and like going back to what you were saying, how we have been conditioned, we've been conditioned to be fearful of asking questions to our medical providers 
and going mm-hmm. and saying, well, this is what I need. And we've been conditioned to not be um, an advocate and, and practice the self-advocacy, which is so crucial when you have a chronic illness, um, yeah. like especially like and this MS. is a part of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember one yeah. time when I was speaking with um, a neurologist, and I've told this story several times on our podcast, but I, I had a, an argument with the neurologist and not my current neurologist is years ago. Um, they wanted <laughs> me to take a drug called Neurontin. And I said, well, can I, can you tell me about it? And nobody could seem to tell me about it. They were like, no, we're just writing the script prescription for you and you're mm. just going to take it and this will help you. And I said, well, how is it going to help me? And they just refused. Right. And I couldn't believe my ears and I couldn't believe my eyes. And I'm like, is this really happening to me? Because I'm a, you know, 30 young, no, I was a 30 something. I was like maybe 31 years old. And I said, is this because they think I'm young and I'm not in, informed? I, I'm highly educated. I know right. what I'm talking about. And I said, well, mm. I've looked up this, this particular drug. And do you realize that I'm vegan, number one? And number two, I'm, mm. I'm really, I'm a strict vegan at the time I was. And, um, and the mm. ingredients that they use, uh, it just it doesn't sit well with me. And for for that, that's just my own personal mm. preference. And I said, so is mm. there something else that we can look at? And so I started breaking down, you know, why and and my reasoning. And then they just kind of stopped. And they said, well, you know what? We just can't help you because you've just been a non-compliant patient from the beginning. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Non-compliant. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And yeah. that's why it's funny how that narrative right. changes. Oh, it is it, it, it yeah. it's amazing. And that that's an example of that non-compliant. That's an example of right now we're seeing an epidemic of black boys um Latino boys too, but mostly black boys being um disproportionately expelled and suspended from preschool. These are four and five year old little mm. boys, right? And so when you describe what you just described coming from somebody who looks different from you, that's simply self-advocacy. Mm-hmm. But coming from you, it's non-compliance. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what's happening in classrooms across the country, at police yeah. stops across the country. Because when one phenotype demonstrates self-advocacy, it looks as such and it's received as such. When you filter yes. self-advocacy through the lens of white supremacy, you get non-compliance and you get mm-hmm. police Yes. And now I'm not saying when I use the word white supremacy, I'm not speaking of white supremacy on an individual level. I'm speaking of the results right. of white supremacy in a society that endorsed right. it for generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. I think that wow. interferes with clinical uh, black people participating in clinical trials, which is what Dr. Williams was talking about. We're fearful. Again, we don't want to do it because we feel like nobody's going to listen to us anyway. Why? why? What's the point? We're just going to go to the doctor and get fixed. And that's it. And what's happened to us over centuries. The Tuskegee they were literally telling people that we're studying your blood and they were giving them syphilis when a cure was around to cure right. it. I mean, and so we have a reason to be resistant to these things. It's in recent history that the U.S. government has yes. been apologizing for tragedies that they've placed on our community. So we have a reason to be resistant. Um, when you juxtapose the history that we've experienced and then the lessons of not being self-advocates, that means that you are going in 
with a fear of advocating for yourself into a space that have, that has historically rendered trauma on your ancestors. No, I'm not going in there. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, we have yes. to change that narrative, but we also have to get more blacks into science. Yes. We also have yeah, to get yes. more black people um, getting, you know, PhDs and different disciplines of science so that the research can be filtered through that lens. Um, you know, my book would not be a book right now if there weren't more black people in research. All these other things that we're seeing, medical apartheid, post-traumatic, post-traumatic slave syndrome, these books would not have been created had black people not taken that access. And so um, it's a whole host of systemic issues that we have to pay attention to when we look at all of the things in the black community. It's important to understand that it's not hopeless, but it's hopeless if we don't address it in the way that we need to address it in. And that's looking at Mm -hmm. our history intergenerationally, our contemporary experiences, and what we're looking to do in the future because future context also impacts contemporary context. If an individual sees the future as hopeless, that impacts the way that they act today. And so it's not just about today and yesterday, it's today, yesterday, and tomorrow. What are we doing about all three of those? Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I don't have so many more questions, but I know we have to, you know, wrap it wrap it up but yeah this was so enlightening well thank you you all are wonderful and have curated a wonderful conversation thank you thank you so dr grant where can people find you online on social media yes i am on um i am on twitter at um at dr grant jr Mm -hmm. My website is Mindful Training Solutions, and that's mindfultrainingsolutions.com. And then I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Grant Jr. Okay, perfect. And look for Dr. Grant on YouTube also for that Fox Soul interview, which was amazing. It was, yeah. Well, I can post it to the website. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grant. It's been a true pleasure. Would you consider in the future maybe joining us again yeah. for a conversation at some point down the line? Absolutely. Okay, great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Just let okay. me know when. Perfect. I'd love that. Perfect. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Myelin and Melanin podcast. You can always find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at myelinmelanin. You can always subscribe to us on YouTube. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.